O Lord, apart from your grace, our hearts are darkened and we do not see Christ. We do not see him aright. But in your grace, you have shown the light of the glory of God that shines on the face of Christ into our hearts, causing us to believe and to rejoice. And we pray, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, that you would show us more of Christ. As Paul could say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold his glory in the pages of Scripture, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So show us more of Christ's saving glory in his glorious mission for us. Help us to believe it and be changed by it for our good, for your glory. Amen. You could be seated. Well, we are in the book of Matthew once again today, the first book of the New Testament as we work our way through this important book. Matthew's account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus begins with conflict and opposition and threat and trouble. While the wise men from the east sought to worship the newborn king of the Jews, you'll remember Herod, King Herod, he received that same news of the newborn king purely as a threat to his pathetic, shaky human kingdom. He was even willing to have all the infant males of Bethlehem slaughtered in hopes of squashing any possibility that the newborn king would survive. Of course, God miraculously led Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, Jesus off to Egypt to protect the child. But you fast forward a few decades, and it, it is Satan himself who has Jesus in his sights. And he tempts and tempts and tempts and tempts in the wilderness. Of course, Satan's schemes were futile as well. But we're starting to get a picture of opposition. It's not long after Satan's temptations that Jesus began to teach in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. His Sermon on the Mount goes on to reiterate the same thing. Verse 44 of chapter 5, he said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We keep reading and we find religious leaders attributing his miracles to the power of Satan. We read of passing comments like we saw last week of one of the 12 apostles who would later betray him. And all this is foreshadowing what's to come. This is the writing on the wall. And we know how books like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all end with betrayal and trial and beatings and crucifixion. No, it is not his defeat because there's resurrection. But nevertheless, there is opposition throughout and if we know the grand story of the whole Bible, we know that this is simply par for the course. 
This is a theme that goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. It was the seed of the serpent who is told to be, who would be against the seed of the woman. A chapter later, Cain kills his righteous brother, Abel, because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's wasn't, and so he turned murderous. That's what we see in Psalm 2, one of the Psalms most quoted in the New Testament. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? That's what Phil read for us in Psalm 124. It's what we've been seeing in Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is a place where Jesus drives home this expectation of opposition and conflict, especially in the apostles' mission of taking the news of the kingdom to the world. Jesus began this section, which we saw last week, by calling those 12 apostles to himself and then calling on them to pray for more laborers for the harvest. He then commissioned the 12 for a short-term missions trip, giving them instruction about what to bring or what not to bring on their way where they should go, with whom they should stay. And ever so briefly, we saw last week, Jesus suggests that some will receive these messengers and their message, and some will not receive the message or the messengers. Well, as we turn to the passage for this week, in the second half of chapter 10, we'll see that Jesus is unpacking where he left off with the reception of the message. And here he's emphasizing the rejection of the message and the messengers. And while he's continuing to address the 12 apostles specifically, we'll see this week how his mission is now opening up. We'll see now this week how it's more applicable to really all missionaries and all Christians of all ages, not just the 12. So look down in your Bibles with me at Matthew 10, starting in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. 
If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Well, as I studied this passage this week, I couldn't identify an obvious, tidy literary structure to this passage. It seems to me that Jesus cycles through a number of themes again and again and again. I would suggest that there are three categories of teaching that Jesus repeatedly cycles through. Three E words will help us. He lays out expectations for opposition. He gives exhortations or instructions about how to respond to the opposition. And then he gives various encouragements to help them endure. That's our outline. First, we'll see the expectation of opposition. The disciples should expect opposition. And Jesus starts with startling imagery. Verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He's already said that the people are like sheep without a shepherd and implied that he is the true shepherd that passages like Ezekiel 34 foretold. But now, the true shepherd, the good shepherd, tells the sheep that he's sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's dangerous. That's ominous. They're defenseless. 
And he wants them to be prepared for opposition, not surprised by it. He wants them to not be surprised even by fierce opposition and deadly opposition. The disciples, even Jesus' closest 12 disciples, they struggle to understand what kind of kingdom this king was bringing to the world. You see this best in Mark's gospel account, though it's in all four of the gospel accounts. But in Mark, you have two halves. And in the first half of Mark, the question on everyone's lips is this, who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this man? Then in chapter 8, Jesus puts the question to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. For the first time in anyone in the story, Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. Ah, the Messiah. That's right. It's then that Jesus tells the disciples about his impending rejection and death in Jerusalem. And Peter won't buy that. He won't go there. He says, not so, Lord. Because he can't comprehend of a Christ, a Messiah, a king that suffers and dies. That would be defeat. In his thinking, like so many of his time, the Christ would come and conquer Rome and take back the land. Christ would be a warrior king, the likes of King David, but on steroids. Way better. Of course, we now know that Jesus came as a Messiah, a king, to overthrow a bigger problem than Rome's tyranny, but the tyranny of sin that dwells within all of our hearts. He died at the hands of his enemies, not as defeat, but as a ransom, Matthew 20, verse 28, as a sacrifice. For our sins. But the disciples were really slow to understand that, even though Jesus was so plain. In Mark 9, he again repeats the foreshadowing, the, the promise, the, the prediction of his death and resurrection. They still don't get it. In Mark 10, Jesus reiterates the same prediction once again, and they really don't get it. Here, two of the disciples come to Jesus and say, when you come into your kingdom, could we have the left hand of your throne and the right hand of your throne? They're still picturing a geopolitical, mighty kingdom and Jesus on the winning side of things. And that is why it is so important for Jesus to prepare his disciples here for the opposition that they will face. It will not mean loss. It will not mean trouble. It will not be not according to plan. According to plan is this. You will be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And yet there's comfort if you hear that. In all its fullness, I am sending you out. He's sending his people out. As for what it will look like, 
Well, there's the legal, judicial kind of opposition. Verse 17, they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in the Jewish synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. So it's not merely that you'll be unpopular or unliked, though that might be hard enough, but you will be in trouble with the law. That's what we see later on in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's what Jesus continued to do through the apostles and other disciples after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And it only takes until Acts chapter 4 that the disciples are arrested, beaten, charged, etc., And that just sets the pattern. The pattern keeps repeating itself throughout Acts, city after city after city. In fact, the last one-fourth of the book of Acts, Acts 21 to 28, is Paul imprisoned and on trial, giving various defenses. It's just what Jesus foretold back in Matthew 10 that his disciples would face. But Jesus here also promises that there'll be familial opposition. Families. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children rising against parents, having them put to death. You'll be hated by all. Legal and judicial opposition can be considered perhaps bearable as long as family stands by you. And thinks well of you. But Jesus promises that those closest to us might turn against us in the most aggressive of ways. The family opposition continues in verse 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. Wait, didn't Jesus come to bring peace to the earth? Isn't that what the angel said at the announcement of his birth? Peace on earth. Isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room? Peace I give to you. Yes. Yes, Jesus came to bring peace, but not as the world thinks of peace. And so from another angle, Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, division. Jesus came to divide humanity. We're either for him or against him. There's no middle position. And as one individual comes to embrace Jesus as Savior and King, they necessarily turn from whatever they grew up hearing and believing and trusting in. And as they turn from that to turn to Jesus, and they tell their family about that, the rest of the family will either join them in turning from what the family believed to Jesus, or they won't. And if they won't, then they will turn against the one who has turned away from the family religion to embrace Christ. You might say, well, isn't there a third option? Isn't there apathy, indifference, or perhaps even, uh, well, good for you that you found something that works for you. Isn't that plausible? Doesn't that happen today? It does, yes. 
That's not uncommon, especially in our pluralistic culture today, but it has been pretty uncommon in cultures around the world, even to this day. A pastor, a friend of mine down in Frisco, Texas, Afshin Ziafat, when he became a Christian, he was disowned by his Iranian Muslim father. Disowned. Cut out of the family. Thankfully, later in life, his father believed. And there was reconciliation. But without that belief, without reconciliation, he, that's it. The relationship was done. You're dead to me. There's familial opposition. That's par for the course. That's pretty normal. But it's familiar opposition if we're followers of Jesus. It's familiar because they oppose Jesus. Jesus' own family didn't at first believe in him. Mark chapter 3 records it. His mother and his brothers came to him to try to like get him out of the public eye and bring him home, saying he is out of his mind. That's what they thought of him. Yeah, Jesus himself knows what it's like to be rejected by family, to be rejected by his own kind. He, he came to his own, John 1 says, and his own, his own people did not receive him. As he puts it here in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for you to be like your master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign you? Beelzebub? Well, that means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung. It was a name that the Jews gave to a Philistine god, but the term eventually evolved over the years, coming to mean the chief of demons or Satan. And we saw that just a couple of weeks ago. Matthew 9, verse 34. The Pharisees admit that Jesus does the miraculous, but they say he casts out demons by the power of demons. And we said then, and we need to say it again this week, that we, as his followers, shouldn't be surprised when our best intentions as Christians are said to be harmful and hurtful bigoted and hateful. Oh, that kind of persecution, well, it's prevalent today. It's something you'll hear at the workplace if you're honest about what you believe and the kind of lifestyle you live. But what about the other kinds? I mean, death and that kind of stuff is in our passage as well. Being dragged before courts and being flogged. What about us today here in the U.S.? How do we apply Matthew chapter 10? Let me offer three principles that will help us navigate this stuff that seems foreign to us. Number one, not all Christians suffer persecution to this degree or kind. And for that, we should praise God. And we should thank God for whatever freedoms we do enjoy. And we should not, not take advantage of those freedoms. We should take advantage of those freedoms as God gives them. Secondly, 
severe persecution, we should always remember, has been more typical than not on the whole in other parts of the world and in church history. Even today, according to Open Doors USA, you can go to their website, opendoorsusa.org. It's a ministry that tracks Christian persecution happening today. And in the last year, they tell us that over 360 million Christians have lived in places of high-level persecution. Almost 6,000 Christians were killed for their faith in the last year. 5,100 churches or other Christian buildings were attacked in the last year. 6,100 Christians were detained without trial or were abducted. That's today. Just because it's not happening here doesn't mean it's not the norm for a lot of Christians in this world. We could read about the martyrs of the faith. Hopefully somewhere in your home you have a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can get it on Kindle for about a buck or less. Get it. Have it. Read it. Know the stories. Know the stories of the Bible. From Daniel and the three Hebrew young men to Acts, to Revelation. What New Testament document doesn't have an element of persecution about it? It's either written to persecuted people or about persecution or preparing them for persecution. So that's the second principle here. Severe persecution has been more typical than not on the whole. Keep that in mind. And then third, we should not be surprised even here in the U.S., if we face much more severe persecution sometime in the future. We might rightly think that certain freedoms and rights are afforded to us by the U.S. Constitution, but that is no guarantee that we are afforded those rights in the plan of God in the future. Expect opposition. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by smirks. Don't be surprised by mockery. And don't be surprised if it gets much, much worse. But then secondly, we'll move more quickly through these other two. There are exhortations to be faithful and bold in the midst of this persecution. Jesus would have us be prepared, not surprised, when facing persecution. But more than that, he would also exhort us to be faithful and bold. To exhort, maybe you're not familiar with that word. It means like to instruct, but also to implore, right? To, to give an imperative. And so verse 16 has one of those right at the beginning. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, here's the exhortation, be wise as serpents. In other words, cunning and shrewd. Don't be dumb or naive. Be wise as serpents in this mission, but be innocent as doves. Don't be sinful. Don't be harmful to people or the cause. And here's an example of that. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. That isn't cowardice. It can be strategy. Strategy. 
And again, it's what we see in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, you just see story after story that kind of goes like this. You've got people praying and proclaiming Jesus and then being persecuted, and then somehow the gospel progresses. It just keeps making progress, despite all the best efforts of the enemies of Christ trying to squash it out. And so in Acts chapter 1, it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It's, it's like, um, have any of you ever squashed a wolf spider and not known that it was a mom carrying a sack of little spiders? And you think you've killed one and then these little ones spread. Well, it's kind of like that in the book of Acts. Great, fierce opposition and it just leads to more and more progress. Now, by the way, we have to at least reckon with the second half of verse 23 where it says, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Hopefully that made you scratch your head when you first read it. You won't have gone through the towns of Israel until the Son of Man comes or before the Son of Man comes. So what coming is this? It doesn't just have to be the second coming, which you might think of first. You might think that's what it is. The Son of Man comes. When will he come? He'll come again. He hasn't come yet, but he will come. Okay, but then why does it say they won't have gone through the towns of Judea before the Son of Man comes? So I think this is a different coming. Son of man language goes back to Daniel 7. And the language there is this vision of the son of man coming before, coming before the ancient of days and receiving the plan, receiving dominion, the kingdom. I think that's what's going on. I think the son of man comes in this passage like in that Daniel 7 sense, which we might more accurately tie to Jesus' death and resurrection than to his second coming. So this is just saying, you're gonna keep going on this mission even through the Son of Man coming in his death and resurrection. It'll be ongoing. You'll keep going. Verse 18 says, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, but here's the purpose, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now this mention of Gentiles and their courts tells us that Jesus here has in view a broader scope than that limited short-term mission that he was previously talking about, which was just to the Jews. That's what we saw last week. And so it's possible that Matthew is taking two different commissioning passages and just putting them together. He does that. He groups miracles. He groups teaching. It could be here. He's grouping different commissions. But regardless, it's clear that now this witness envisions them outside of Jewish lands before Gentiles, like we see in the book of Acts and like we know throughout the rest of church history. But again, notice the purpose. It's all purposeful. 
You'll be dragged before officials to bear witness before them. Again, we think of the book of Acts and how that last one-fourth is all about Paul's trials and hearings and defenses. And as he is given defense before these various tribunals, yes, on the one hand, he defends his rights as a Roman citizen. Yes, he says that some of the things they've said about him and charged him with are not true, but even more so, he takes opportunity simply to preach Christ, to tell of the story of his conversion. He's living out the very things Jesus said here in Matthew 10. Or take Philippians, for example. Philippians is a letter written after Acts when Paul is imprisoned in Rome a second time. And here's what he writes to the concerned Philippians from his jail. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me in my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial Roman guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, being imprisoned means you've got Roman guards around you 24-7. And that means you've got an interesting audience. And Paul ends his letter to the Philippians by saying, with a wink and a smile, those of Caesar's household greet you. They say hi. They're now brothers in Christ. And you see, it's unstoppable. The, the last word of the book of Acts in the Greek is unhindered. As Paul is there in his first Roman imprisonment, the gospel's spreading. And Paul, though in chains, can say that he's proclaiming and teaching without hindrance. Unhindered. It's unshackled. And so you don't have to be nervous about anything. Verse 19, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. And then Jesus will go on and tell them why they don't have to be anxious. That's the encouragement part, and we'll get to that shortly. But just notice, he says, you don't have to worry. He says, you don't have to be afraid. Three times he says, you don't have to fear. Verse 26 and verse 31. And then verse 28 in the middle there, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. They can't kill you. Well, they, they can kill you. But they can't kill your soul. Now God can kill you. And he can destroy your soul in hell. So Jesus says here, fear him. Don't fear them. All they can do is kill you. But fear him. Fear God. What does that mean? Why fear God? Well, we don't have to fear God in the ultimate sense. If we're reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, he loves us. He cares for us. He'll go on to talk about that in just a bit here. But as forgiven people who know what kind of God we've been reconciled to, we stand in awe of him. We have an ongoing reverent awe before him. 
And when we have that kind of relationship with that kind of awesome God, we don't have to fear anything else. Proverbs 28 says, the righteous are bold like a lion. For right with God, what can man do to me? And so, proclaim it. Say it loud. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you heard whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus shared things with the apostles in private. Things like this passage that they have written down for all to see. And now we are to spread the news of it to anyone, everyone, holding nothing back. It's really a matter of loves, not just obedience, but loves. You see that in verse 37? Whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God expects us to love him. Jesus specifically expects us to love him more than we would love our highest loves here on earth. And he's worthy of it. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of life, verse 38. Whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Our following Christ means dying to self. And yet dying to self means true life. Whoever finds his life in this world will ultimately lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life in this world will ultimately gain eternal life in the end. If that's not enough of an encouragement for you, then let's take one more pass through the passage to find the other encouragements. Thirdly, there are encouragements along the way. Expectations of opposition, exhortations to be faithful and bold, and encouragements through it all. We've already seen that he sends us out. So, it's his mission. We also see, verse 19, that we can be encouraged by the fact that he'll be with us and help us by his spirit. He'll, he'll help us with what to say. Don't be anxious about how you're to speak. Why? For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Why are we Christians Trinitarian, believing in one God of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, in part because of passages like this, where Jesus can speak of the Spirit of the Father. Three persons, one God. The Spirit of your Father will speak through you and give you what you need to say at a moment of great trial. That shouldn't discourage preparation. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to be ready to make a defense for anyone who asks of the hope that is within us. Be ready, yes. But it should also, here, this promise in Matthew 10 should be a, a real antidote to worry and anxiety about what we will say. God can bless a needle of truth in a haystack of error. He can use surprising parts of the Bible 
to get someone's attention. Do you know R.C. Sproul was converted after thinking about a passage in Ecclesiastes where a tree dies in the woods, there it lies. And he thought, that's me. That's, that's, as, that's, that's as useless as I am. That's my eternal destiny apart from Christ. God used that weird verse in Ecclesiastes to save R.C. Sproul and to use him mightily. So when we feel like we lack wisdom about what to say on behalf of Christ, or when we feel like the, the, the Spirit isn't providing what we need to say next, we pray, we trust, be encouraged. Be encouraged that suffering for righteousness' sake is Christ-like. It's, it's identifying with Him. We're, we're walking in His footsteps. We're doing what He did. Be encouraged that all will be revealed in the end. Verse 26, have no fear for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So when you are maligned and misrepresented and accused falsely, when your good is spoken evil of, well, be encouraged. God knows and there will be vindication in the end. Be encouraged that all they can do to you is kill you. Do not fear those who kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. As Martin Luther taught us to sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Be encouraged that your heavenly Father sovereignly cares for you and watches over you. Verse 29, he says, are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, you are more valuable than sparrows. Or as he puts it right between those two sayings, verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of you, that's not a high number. <laughs> but it's the right number. You can trust God. It's the right number. He's sovereign over that detail. Moms don't even know the number of hairs on their little son's heads. But God does. Not one hair falls to the ground apart from his will. No, no sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. It's not just that he's sovereign over everything, which he is, but he's sovereignly caring for us down to that detail. So whatever we go through, we can trust him. We can trust him whatever befall. And really, that's, that's true not just of persecution, as it's written about here in this context, but it's true of any trials, any hardships we go to. He cares for you. He cares for you more than sparrows, and he cares for sparrows. He cares for you down to the number of hairs on your head. So be encouraged. And be encouraged by his 
acknowledgement of you. He owns you. He will publicly own you if you will publicly own him. Verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Oh, we're just scratching the surface on a number of encouragements Jesus gives for the mission of spreading the gospel in this world. Be encouraged, Christian. If you're not a Christian, you say, so you guys really are trying to spread this thing, aren't you? As one guy put it to me as I was talking to him on a plane once, he said, you Christians really are trying to take over the world. <laughs> and I said, well, that's one way to put it, yes. Jesus is actually intending to take over the world. It's his anyway. And I said, but really look at it this way. We're just trying to get more people to the party. This is just an invitation. We just want you in. This is out of love for you. Yeah. Christianity is unapologetically a proselytizing religion. We want others in, but we want them in for their good and for Christ's glory. And Jesus wants every one of us to be in on that mission, wherever he's put us. For some of us, it'll mean going far away to places where the gospel is not as, not as accessible. And for those of us who stay, we need to send those who will go. And as we stay and send, we also speak. As we go, wherever we go, wherever the Lord plants us. The question was put to us at one point, and in the affirmative, we put our lot with Christ. Here's the question, who is on the Lord's side? That's the question we hold out to the world. Who is on the Lord's side? Do, do you know that old hymn? Can I just read you a bit of it? Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers, other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Jesus, thou hast bought us, not with gold or gem, but with thine own lifeblood for a diadem, with thy blessing filling each who comes to thee. Thou hast made us willing, thou hast made us free. By thy grand redemption, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Oh, Savior, we are thine. One more verse. Chosen to be soldiers in an alien land. Chosen, called, and faithful for our captain's band. In the service royal, let us not grow cold. Let us be loyal, noble, true, and bold. Master, will you keep us by thy grace divine? Always on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. May that be so of all of us here today. Let's pray. Lord, not everyone in this room 
surely is on your side right now, but perhaps would be a day, a time right now, where by your grace, you would move them from darkness to light. They would put their lot with Jesus and follow him in light of his astounding grace. And Lord, may every Christian in this room remember that they have put their lot with this Savior who sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But you, O Lord, are with us, and you will come again and make all things right. O Lord, until then, we pray you would use us. We are yours. We pray in your name. Amen.